Thank you for joining us for this episode of Turp Dudes, brought to you by Heralds. My name is Jeff Atkinson. We are reaching out to industry leaders and game changers to discuss what they're seeing out there, new discoveries, and the science behind today's turf management strategies. This podcast was created for you, the turfgrass manager, with a curiosity into the science behind turfgrass management. If you have a topic suggestion, know of innovative work in the field we should feature, or simply have a question you would like for us to address, please let us know at turfdudes@heralds.com. On today's episode, we interview Dr. Jim Kearns, turfgrass pathologist at NC State University. I'm also joined by Dr. Raymond Snyder and Greg Nickel of Heralds. Dr. Kearns' research focuses on the etiology, epidemiology, and management of warm and cool season grass diseases. Fungicides make up the largest segment of pesticide applications to fine turf today. Dr. Kearns and his team are helping lead the way in developing best management practices to maximize the efficacy and consistency of applied fungicides against today's most troublesome pathogens. Enjoy the show. Dr. Kearns, thank you for joining us today. Thank, thank you for, for having me. Thank you for being here. Good morning. So, just got done with the Dover Seminar. Um, we just finished up a series of presentations, uh, particularly your presentation where you talked about um, a number of different topics, and some of those we're going to cover today. But before we kind of get in, into your program and, and what you're researching, can you tell us a little bit about kind of the NC State turf program um, as a whole? what you guys are seeing as trends of students and uh, the health of that part of our industry, I guess. Okay. Yeah. So NC State uh, turf program is actually pretty strong that we're fairly unique. Uh, We have nine faculty uh, at NC State. Um, But one of the issues there is a lot of them are near retirement age. (laughs) So we are going to be going through some replacement. We won't get all of them back, but uh, been pretty healthy there. Uh, on the student side, um, yes, I mean, the last 10 years has been a pretty precipitous decline, uh, but we are doing better, I think, than others. Uh, we have 23 in the four-year program and I think 30 or 31 in our two-year program. So, you know, it's not 100 in each program like it was 10 years ago, but um, it, we still have them. And one of the interesting things that we found out a couple years ago, because we were at this point do we even really need to be training undergrads, Mm -hmm. right? Because we saw this decline. And so we asked admissions, were people applying? And indeed, we had 28 applicants three years ago, and one got in. What was the limitation there? A lot of academic standards? Coming out of rural counties, they were good students. They were 3.8, 3.9, but they can't compete with urban kids. Right, who come in with a four or five because they have the AP classes, right, right. you know, their SAT scores are 1,500. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what we've done, and I think it's going to have a pretty big impact, is NC State and our College of Ag has done a spring admit program because spring admissions don't count in the rankings. <laughs> you know, yeah. all every university is yeah, about their ranking the now. Yeah. Um, or another one I think is very interesting uh, for the listeners is if, if your uh, child is interested, uh, what NC State has done is the NC State promise that if you go to a community college for a year, they'll guarantee you the admittance after yeah. that. And it saves the family thousands of dollars so, to do that route. So there's a path there to is a admission path. for those that may not get in the traditional yeah. Do they gain a year, or do the classes consistently move over? Do they roll into their second semester or their or their sophomore year? Yeah. So the programs are the 
community colleges that they're they're specifically identified so it's a, a direct transfer yeah. so it's a three-year degree after that when they come to nc state and as i tell parents it's like what does it matter it still says nc state at the end exactly you know so my I, first two years were at Palm Beach Community College, and I transferred in the University of Florida. I saved a lot of time, a lot of money, and, and probably had a better. No experience. one's ever asked me. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, I mean, because you know, like our in, intro chemistry class is three hundred people in it. You know, and a student can get lost. Yeah, so easy. I specifically took a lot of those undergraduate chemistry physics classes at the community college level because there was only 30 of, 30 of us in the classroom and the right. professor knew all of our names. Yep. It was a great experience. So I think the promise is out there. I think uh, as a whole, um, we maybe haven't done a great job of marketing, you know, what turf brings as far as a major. You know, Tennessee's done this and they were, they were able to keep their numbers above 40. Mm -hmm. And I think every program should be looking at this. Because I think people are interested. They just don't know. And another one is, if you didn't know, you know, there's a couple high school programs, one in Virginia, one in Georgia, and they're getting 25, 30 kids wow. to show up in a turf. It's a turf program that they've developed. Wow. That's so, unfortunately, I think we need to say that there are benefits to be in this industry. And sometimes maybe we don't say that enough <laughs> focus maybe more on the negatives than we do on the exactly potential positives or the positives that we actually see so what about the extension program i mean you guys your field day raymond and i are in a position where we get to attend a bunch of field days each year fortunately but your guys field day you got 700 people this field day that's a huge outreach event that you guys put on yeah so our extension program at nc state's really strong um you know they they always uh you know, jockey back and forth, but it's usually NC State, Wisconsin, others that have some of the strongest extension programs. Uh, so we get a lot of support, you know, from the, from them. Um, but we're also in a pretty good, in, in, you know, area. I mean, most people don't know that North Carolina is now in the top ten most populous states well, I I in live the country. There, uh, Charlotte is probably going to eclipse. Mm -hmm top six most populated cities quick. is what it's looking like. So, you know, it is a very good area. We can draw a lot of people in. Um, but I think it's also, you know, a lot of the work that's done by myself, Susanna, Grady, Fred, Rick. You know, North Carolina is a great place to study turf. Yeah, you have the mountains, <laughs> you have the beach, you have everything yeah. in between. All different grass types. All yeah. different grass types. Yep. Absolutely. Now, you say that doing research, what are kind of the focuses the current focus of your research program so right now currently you know uh, primarily anything related to root diseases yeah um, it's always kind of been my forte so you know pythium root rot nematodes mm -hmm. uh, I never really wanted to work on nematodes but I Nobody was kind of forced to <laughs> yep. um, looking at fungicide movement mm -hmm. right uh, and you know with my program it always adapts to kind of what's the next problem. So one of the ones that we're probably going to get into next is large patch mm -hmm. because for some reason we're seeing not as good a control that we used to. Really? So we're you know moving into that. So it's always evolving and adapting. Now you're saying you're not seeing as good a control. Is that a um, observation from the number of samples of that disease that are coming into your diagnostic lab? 
Yes, I think we're seeing an increase in that. Uh, we're seeing more warm season grasses planted in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. So a lot of zoysia grass, centipede, uh, not as much St. Augustine, but that, you know, it's more coastal for us. Uh, but I think one of the big things, you know, as I talked a little bit about today was our environment has changed. Mm -hmm. That we really need to revisit management of large patch. You know, is it really a 70 degree soil temperature window? Is it a little earlier? Is it later? Mm -hmm. uh, one thing that Lee Miller's looked at in, in Missouri that we've not really focused on is he's found that a spring application is exceptionally important. We don't necessarily recommend that in the southeast mm. and we may be missing the boat so that's kind of the idea of moving towards that have we potentially stopped using chemistries more recently that maybe were providing some coverage for that disease in the past that we did not know about perhaps uh, some stuff that's been taken off the market or less utilization perhaps yeah that's interesting i think when, as I focus on large patch, you know, I don't focus as much on golf courses. We don't have as much zoysia grass in, in the southeast like, you know, Lee does in, in mm -hmm. the Midwest. Yep. But for lawn care, absolutely. Uh, with azoxystrobin coming off patent, nobody's using pre-mixed products in lawn care anymore. And I think uh, the headways, the, you know, it used to be disarm M was used a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that DMI is critical for large batch management, especially in this, you know, new normal climate that we have. So I think that is a, a big a big component of it. It's interesting. I know uh, Dr. Yelverton, NC State as well, had a conversation on social media this week about, you know, bumping up pre-emerge application timings for herbicides as well. So it's not just limited to diseases, you know, it's kind of all over the board. Oh, yeah. We have to rethink how we're putting together our whole timings of all of our programs. Absolutely. So, to kind of get back on that conversation of something you talked about in your presentation today, irrigating fungicides after um, applications, directly after applications. What are some of the benefits that you've seen, or what are kind of the rules of engagement, I guess, if you will, for watering when deciding when to water or not to water after a fungicide application? Very, very good question. So, I think the, the first rule of engagement is what are you targeting, mm -hmm. right? So. And why I say that, because I have some people translate my words into, <laughs> uh, incorrectly. Well, you, you said. <laughs> yeah, I said, uh, you can water everything in. No, yep. I didn't say that. If your specific target is something, Pythium root rot, fairy ring, take all root rot down in Florida, you have to water those products in, right? And, you know, Harold's and all the manufacturers have their programs and list their target. Mm -hmm. And I think you all even list even further this should be watered in with yep. an eighth of an inch of water, right? So those, that's the first rule of engagement. What are, you, what are you trying to get with the fungicide? And in some cases, I think that's kind of been lost in translation. Well, I just spray this and mm -hmm. yeah, everything does all right. Well, well, why are you spraying, right? What do you target? Mm -hmm. um, two, I think for that root disease, fungicides stick to organic material readily. So water it immediately and you know I can be frank and people probably get mad at me that's fine but there's no excuse mm -hmm. I mean they're out early enough you can water and get the product off of the leaf to where it needs to be because once it dries from our work you can't move it. so say an eighth of an inch is it critical that we have an eighth of an inch or is it critical that we just have water to get it off the leaf 
what what's the critical threshold? That's a question we always get a lot of times with wedding agents, which is a whole another conversation. But <laughs> just curious on a wedding agent, or excuse me, the fungicide. So answer. yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, what is that critical amount? Now we did see a statistic. Well, we didn't look at anything below an eighth of an inch. Was the unfortunate? Okay. Um, now I do have a uh, picture where we looked at a tenth of an inch in like a cone tainer setup. Mm-hmm. And it didn't provide sufficient control. So that might be that threshold, that really. Could that, be that, that threshold eighth of an inch, where that's the minimum. Maybe a tenth to an eighth. A tenth to an eighth. If they don't want to get to an eighth, it seems like it has to be above a tenth, right? There's uh, not much of a window of flexibility there. Yeah, if they're able to discern between a tenth and an eighth, they're they're pretty good. Exactly. <laughs> and you know, in most places, if if they have calibrated the irrigation system and know what an eighth of an inch is, yeah. You know, like for us at Lake Wheeler, it's about six minutes. Mm-hmm. It's really, it, it's not that impractical, right? right, right. Um, and I think that's really important because I'll at least tell a little story. Uh, a couple years ago, we started seeing that Segway wasn't performing quite like we thought. Mm-hmm. And I was quite worried because it's like, you know, this is the gold standard for root rot control. Um, and then at our farm, we never, you know, we're academics. We don't always, or I'm an academic, don't always think about the practical things. And it's like, maybe we're not getting the amount of water we think. Mm-hmm. And then it turned out it was the case. Oh, wow. We were watering at uh, four minutes, and that was right around a tenth of an inch. So we now target about seven to eight, and that's about an eighth of an inch for us. And the performance of Segway came back to normal. Yeah, I, we got users that will often combine a a contact with something that's designed to go into the soil, how much are they potentially negating the effectiveness of a corthalonil if they include it with a soil-directed product? They want to try to do things efficiently and apply them both at the same time. So that's another good question, and we've actually looked at this in certain programs of, because of that efficiency, and like, for example, we had the same program where chlorothalonil was always left on the surface and one that we tank mixed it with Segway. And there was no difference okay. in what we saw in that program. I don't necessarily recommend that, but <coughs> like you mentioned, if they get in a pinch, you know, even in our research, we've showed, you know, 70% of it of an eighth of an inch still stays in the top right. part of that uh, uh, foliage. So. But the post-watering practice should probably default to what you're trying to get into the soil. Correct. Correct. What about, uh, you mentioned mowing following applications and watering after applications. Does that have an impact on how much you might remove um, through a mowing event if you do or do not water? So, interesting. I'll just take a little step back and say, initially we thought it was going to have a huge impact. Because a study that Travis Gannon did showed when you applied heritage and tall fescue, watered it in, you could remove up to somewhere 30-40% of it the next day. Jeez. Wow. So we were like, oh boy, are, are we shooting ourselves in the foot with these soil-borne diseases by mowing, you know, spraying on a Monday, mowing on a Tuesday? So we looked at this in our rounds for research project, and at least for uh, Insignia, Balaton, and Vallista, we saw very little in the clippings itself. And it may be due to the canopy architecture, right? You're not removing a whole lot on a putting green. However, I still think it's probably worth it 
to skip mowing the next day. Gotcha. You know, just roll it. Don't take any chance of removing it out of that particular system. Because I can't. I well, can't. Yeah, remember just, if you go to the expense of, a, of applying these yes. high cost breaker products, take an extra day and get the most out of your investment. Correct. Because I, I can't remember the specific detail of the slide, and I, I don't remember if you showed it today. I remember you showed it at the Myrtle Beach Rounds for Research update, but it was a very drastic. If you go from you know just one order of magnitude lower of concentration in the plant or on the plant, then your control of maybe a dollar spot or whatever made disease it might have been dropped significantly. Mm -hmm. So it's very important, and my takeaway from that was very important to have that critical threshold of active ingredient in the plant. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that what I show, show there is this effective concentration, and we know for a lot of soil-borne pathogens, mm -hmm. they're, they're really sensitive to fungicides. So one part per million is about probably, I mean, I can't say that for everything, but I know at least for take-all root rot, one part per million is sufficient to completely inhibit its growth. And yes, by watering it immediately versus not, we were below that threshold by waiting. So it's, you know, it's critical to get that investment to try to prolong the suppression. Because Rick Latin, you know, talks about in his book, fungus can resume growth once that fungicide depletes to where it doesn't slow it down, right? And by not taking the time to water it in, appropriately potentially skip mowing the next day you're asking for some variability in control i think gotcha so ultimately that you as a applicator control the efficacy of that fungicide it's not just ai is going to work as long as that ai gets to the target site at the correct concentration absolutely one of my favorite things to say and i didn't say it today but uh, in a big audience is to say you know when fungicides don't work when you use them wrong <laughs> You know, we have so many fungicides and they all work if used appropriately. Right, right. How about how does spray volume, application volume, play into this? Very good question. So uh, spray volume, you know, there was a time, you know, in plant pathology, we always said it had to be two gallons, two gallons, two mm -hmm. gallons. And, you know, at one time we were thinking of looking at three to four gallons as a way to move it. Uh, but that's not practical. Uh, so I'm not convinced anymore that we really need to be at two gallons because if you're applying an eighth of an inch of water, that is astronomically more water than increasing from one gallon right. to two gallons yep. in a 300-gallon sprayer, right? So I think as long as they feel like they're getting good coverage, you know, gallon and a half is probably just fine. Then use your irrigation as then your water your carrier volume. To move yep. it to where it needs to be. The main thing with our work is, and, and other work actually from Europe has showed, you cannot readily leach a fungicide. You can't move it too far is what people mm -hmm. are worried about. And the research is not showing that. It can move laterally off-site. That's right. a because different... Sometimes you've got to reduce the puddling aspect. If someone's spending for six minutes, maybe you need to go three minutes... Let it soak down and then come back and hit it again. Correct. And Especially for those part circles. And that's a very, very good point to make that it depends on the course and their infiltration rate, what wetting agent program they're on, uh, that you don't want it to puddle too much because then it can run maybe off into the approach where you don't care about it anymore. You had mentioned some other things about nutrient applications and their impacts on disease severity. and. 
just want to get your take on generalizations there. You know, we, we talk about specific diseases or just in general terms, ground patch arthritis, whatever it may be. But um, what are you starting to look at uh, in terms of nutrient use and their impacts on disease? So, you know, I think number one, I mean, one of the biggest things that we've been trying to campaign, I guess is the best way, is we need to get away from this low fertility nonsense. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, lean and mean. Lean and mean, I think it's one of the most worthless things I've ever heard. Um, Because you're growing a a surface that's a living entity. You need to feed it, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And so we're, instead of making generalizations, is what I've tried to get away from now. Um, you know, working with Bill Kreuzer's really enlightened me to this growth potential, right? What is our optimal growth? Mm-hmm. Um, and how do we achieve that with fertility? Rather than saying, you know, nebulous things like high end, low end, nobody knows what that means, or even picking a target. Because, you know, I'm not convinced that we really know what that target is. The unfortunate thing, the trends I see tend to be diseases that they struggle with and they can't get it to recover because the plant doesn't have enough food. Right. And so that's where I say, you're, I don't know that you can really overfeed it and cause issues with disease. Yeah, you may lose ball roll distance, right? But that's kind of, I think, where we're coming from. And I think working with Bill, we're going to try to look at this more. Gotcha. What about, um, kind of changing gears a little bit, Pythium root rot, Pythium root dysfunction, <laughs> Pythium blight. I think there's a lot of still confusion about the differences in those, maybe the management of those, um, and the symptoms that go along with each. Yeah, yeah, indeed, <laughs> there still is confusion. Um, so, Pythium blight, I'll start with first, because that's what yeah. most people, I think they get pretty well. Yeah. You know, that's the foliar. Uh, portion where the organism actually grows up onto the leaf so it's not infecting the root Uh, you know the nice thing with that is it's a pretty rare event on cool season grass now Mm -hmm. you know it usually happens when these gully washers come in and at least in my career I've seen it a handful of times on a sand based putting I've seen in fairways tees things like that Uh, so to me, I'm not as worried about it as they maybe were, you know, 30 years ago when there was a lot of native soil greens. Now, those who may have native soil greens, it's still an issue. Still an issue. Um, now, Pythium blight's a major issue on ultra dwarf Bermuda grasses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, still some confusion about that in terms of what it is, um, but it's definitely an issue. And what's unique about it is it happens in the winter when people always associate Pythium with hot. Uh, and that's just not on the, the case. Ultra dwarfs. On the ultra dwarfs. That, that's where we'll see it in South Florida. Cold front moves in, cools down, and sometimes it backs up a little bit, and you end up with this blight type yeah. of condition. Yeah. Where, where, are you, where are your nighttime temperatures at? I think they could be in the, the 50s and 60s, yeah. We've seen Pythium blight on dormant Bermuda grass. So is it more, we're just, yeah. we, in the cool season world, we've always associated Pythium blight with hot temperatures, which is a suboptimal growing condition. But on ultra dwarf Bermuda grass, it's cool temperatures, but a suboptimal growing condition. Correct. I mean, one of the big things, like to bring back the fertility, 
It's all about when the plant is stressed and not growing. These organisms are opportunistic. Mm -hmm. They're looking to take advantage. So Pythium blight, I think most people have a pretty good handle on. So the root rot and root dysfunction, mm -hmm. I think, is where people get confused. Um, and some people say, well, I have root dysfunction and not root rot. And, uh, they are two different diseases, but I think they're stages. So root dysfunction happens early, right, in a new construction. Typically, most greens are less than eight years old. Uh, like, for example, we've had a couple of cases to where they rebuilt last fall. Everything was great. They had a great grow in, and then these patches show up in June or January, February, March because it got dry. So root dysfunction, the organisms invade the roots and basically deteriorate the root hairs. Mm -hmm. There's no rot. So that's one of the key distinctions. The other one, if they think they have root dysfunction, that I always notice, if you take a profiler, mm -hmm. stick it in, pull it out, you'll see the sand just fall right out because you don't have anything holding that you know, sand in there. Uh, it's a definite, distinct patch. It almost, when I first started working on this for my PhD, we thought it was take-all patch because it had a, I mean, perfect, distinct patch. So very different. Whereas root rot, we tend to focus that one primarily, you know, hot, muggy, uh, June, July, August. The foliar symptom is going to be kind of a blackened mm -hmm. appearance, but the main distinction is you pull out the roots and they're as black as can be. They're dead. Just dead. So the key thing for the listeners is get it diagnosed, but also I'd say work with a lab who's worked a lot with these root pythiums. Right. You know, whether it's our lab or Phil Harmon or Rich Buckley, they seem to understand some of the distinctions between these two diseases. We're starting to get into, it's uh, January 15th today when we're recording this, but in no time at all, it's going to be growing season and we're already getting there in, in South Florida. Um, what are some considerations, fungicide, early fungicide applications that maybe to set ourselves up for success going through the rest of the season that you would recommend? So, you know, one of the big things I've been uh, preaching about lately is, you know, we do have so many new chemistries out and we focused a lot on things like SDHIs. But I don't want people to forget about the value of a QOI and really a QOI-DMI mixture, mm -hmm. right? Even on Bermuda grass, uh, that you get a lot with that, especially early on. Um, remember QOIs when the pressure is not great, they're, they're strong pythia materials, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and then the DMIs are bringing things, you know, of these ectotrophic fungi, summer patch, take all root rot, you know, so you get a lot with that early application. Now, I'm not knocking the SDHIs, but I think they have a place somewhere else, right? Um, so that's kind of the thing I've been trying to get people to think about. Uh, then the big one, as you all know, I can't stress enough how important a phosphite or phosphonate material is. That I, I don't, I hate to say it, but I don't know if we can take a break with them. We might be able to go you know, three to four weeks with them at certain times of the year. But I think that is a critical um, backbone for turf health, whether it's from Florida all the way up here into the Northeast. For different reasons, but provides the same effect of higher turf quality. I know we did some work with, with you. We've done some work at Clemson in the past and other places that including that in the same program gave a higher level of turf quality across the season. That's the only difference between the two programs. Even when the program was extremely robust. Exactly. Right. 
the inclusion of the phosphite every couple weeks elevated the turf quality. And you know, one of the things I try to get, remember these disease pathogens are always there. And we don't really have a great handle on when they start feeding. So by consistently applying a phosphite and working with, you know, Harold's or, you know, whomever to get something that fits in their budget, you know, I think is what is critical, mm -hmm. right? Because I think they'll see dramatic improvements in the quality of their turf. By just doing that one inclusion, that one type of a active ingredient. It's interesting. We had a, a, a little discussion. This was at a different meeting, but like Bruce Martin, myself, Billy Crow, uh, we're all in the room and it was, we all had agreed that, you know, courses that we don't see a lot of problems with are really consistent with the phosphites. <laughs> and potentially also proactive. Very proactive. In their, in their uh, disease management plan. Yes. And I think there's enough out there, enough options that it can fit for any budget. I know some of the ones I've worked with, but you all, I'm kind of floored that they're not that expensive, really. <laughs> well, and, for what and you the get. curative responsive is more expensive it's than a lot the proactive <laughs> effect. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned the DMIs, and just to get your opinion, I know you've done a lot of work with the new DMI, Max Tema, and its mixture of product, Navicon, as well. Um, just your take on the level of safety, midsummer applications, early season applications, where, where do you see that new technology fit? Yeah. Uh, so that. The new technology for Maxtima and Navicon, we've looked at it. You know, I commend BASF for this because they've done a lot of work on the safety aspect. So we've looked at it on Ultradorf, Bermuda grass, overseeded and not, uh, fall, winter, spring, no issues. We've looked at it at, on creeping bent grass when it was 104 out and no issue. So this is where, you know, I said it today, it may be. As you know, I can always be a little controversial at times. Uh, there's no excuse to not apply a DMI anymore. We have Maxtima, we've had Briskway. Really the regulation with Banner is really not that bad mm -hmm. if they water it in. Um, and then now FMC is bringing one, mm -hmm. you know, or Rayora yeah, that doesn't yeah. seem to have regulation. So we have that ability to use a DMI without the issue of safety. So again, thinking about season preparations and programs and all, now we have those options midsummer that we can that we can utilize. Correct. To yeah. rotate around those powerful SDHIs and the other fungicides. And yeah. I think for Bermuda grass, that's and I think Raymond can attest to this. One of the issues why I think the ultra dwarfs have become problematic for disease is because we've completely people have almost completely eliminated DMIs. Mm -hmm. And they're exceptionally important, right? And building them back into the program and Maxtima, Rayora, Briskway is, I think, allowing people to do that with, without the fear of something going on. Yeah, they're certainly a staple of our paralyzed programs. Yep. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Turf Dudes. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Google Play Music or tune in directly at turfdudes.com. Send us your questions to at TurfDudes on Twitter or by email to TurfDudes at Heralds.com. TurfDudes is spelled T-U-R-P-H-D-U-D-E-S. Thank you for listening.